The words to which I should like to call your attention this morning are to be found in Paul's epistle to the Ephesians in the third chapter. And we read from verse 2 to verse 7, from the second to the seventh verse in the third chapter of Paul's epistle to the Ephesians. If ye have heard of the dispensation of the grace of God which is given me to your word, how that by revelation he made known unto me the mystery, as I wrote afore in few words, whereby when ye read ye may understand my knowledge in the mystery of Christ, which in other ages was not made known unto the sons of men, as it is now revealed unto his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit, that the Gentiles should be fellow heirs and of the same body and partakers of his promise in Christ by the gospel, whereof I was made a minister according to the gift of the grace of God given unto me by the effectual working of his power. Now, I have read all that for one simple reason, and that is that that is just one sentence. It's a great sentence, of course, with many subdivisions, but it is actually just one sentence. And there is a sense, therefore, in which if we are to understand any of its individual parts correctly and truly, we must uh, have some conception of the whole statement and of the entire thing which the Apostle is here saying. Now, those who were here last Sunday will remember that we began our consideration of this uh, great chapter and we dealt with that first verse where he says, For this cause I, Paul, the prisoner of Jesus Christ, for you Gentiles. He is uh, about to tell them how he is praying for them. But uh, in doing that, he refers to himself as the prisoner of Jesus Christ for them. And that, as we saw, leads to this long digression which starts at the beginning of the second verse and goes on until the end of the thirteenth verse. Now, we uh, were at pains to point out, and I must repeat it in order that we may have our context and setting clear in our minds, that what the apostle has uppermost in his mind is just this. He knew that these Ephesians were troubled about the fact that he was a prisoner it rather tended to stumble them in their faith, as it has often stumbled God's people throughout the centuries. Uh, we all seem to have the notion that as long as we are Christians, and especially if we should happen to be as notable a Christian as this great apostle, that it should mean that we would never have any troubles, that we'd never be in difficulties at all. We all seem to cling to this magical notion of the Christian life and we seem to think that the New Testament promises that the moment you become a Christian, the rest of your story can be summarized by the phrase, and they all lived happily ever afterwards. But of course that isn't the case. And the apostle, this unusual exceptional man, was actually a prisoner as he was writing these words. And he knew that they were in trouble over that. So he now is proceeding to put them right. And he wants them really to see these things in such a way that not only, as he says in verse 13, they will not faint at it, but they will even glory in it. Well, now, how can he do that? Well, the only way to do that is to show them how he himself looks at it. 
He wants to show them that he himself is really glorying in it. And now he is going to open it out to them. And that's what he begins to do in verse 2 at the very beginning of the digression. I, Paul, the prisoner of Jesus Christ for you Gentiles, if ye have heard of the dispensation of the grace of God which is given me to you, or you might translate it, uh, assuming that you do know, taking it for granted that you are aware of the fact that I am in this special position with respect to you. Now, some people are in trouble over this expression, if ye have heard, as if the apostle were doubtful about that. No, it's not an expression of doubt. It's just a, a way of saying, as I say, assuming that. Of course, you know, taking it for granted. And yet, you know, though the apostle does assume that they know it, he nevertheless proceeds to tell them all about it. And there again, I think, is one of those lessons which we should never fail to learn as we read the scriptures. You do know all about this, says the apostle, but I'm going to remind you of it again. Now, the very essence of good teaching is repetition. Because we all think we know things, but if we're examined about them, we discover we don't know them. Not only that, though we may know things theoretically, somehow or another, when we're in trouble and in difficulty, we fail to apply the knowledge. And therefore it becomes necessary that we should be reminded again of this. And that is what the apostle does. They know all about this. He himself had told them. Others had told them. Yet, because they're in trouble about his imprisonment, he says, I must tell you all about it again. Now, I think that he does this quite deliberately. He does it for that reason that I've just been giving. That it is so important that they should understand this. It's because they haven't really understood it that their misunderstanding is tribulations. But not only that. You can't read this digression without getting the sense that the apostle is very glad indeed to go over the great story once more. It's such a magnificent story. It's such a glorious story. It's such a wonderful thing. So that he doesn't apologize for repeating it. Why, there are some things that can never be said too often. They're so magnificent in and of themselves. Very well then. He's telling them that it is only as they grasp this tremendous thing that God has done for them through him, the apostle, that they not only will not be stumbled at his imprisonment, but will indeed end by praising God as they see the perfection of his inscrutable ways. And the same, of course, still applies to us. There can be no doubt at all about this that there is nothing which is so comforting, so reassuring to faith, nothing which is quite so exhilarating in the Christian life as just to stand back and to contemplate and to understand something of God's great plan and scheme and purpose of redemption. And that is the thing which the apostle here unfolds to these Ephesians and through them unfolds it to us. Here, you see, he's just giving them a very hurried picture of how it was the gospel ever came to them. 
they who formerly had been pagans, living that godless life, worshipping a multiplicity of gods, polytheists as they all were, especially in Ephesus, worshipping the great goddess Diana, the goddess of the Ephesians, making images and idols. There they were, and of course living on a very low moral level, such as you always get in paganism and with polytheism. There they had been, but now they're saints in the church of God. They're worshipping together with the converted Jews. The thing is quite astounding. It's almost incredible. And the great question is, how has it ever come to pass? Well, now then, the apostle proceeds to tell them, and especially in this long sentence, beginning here at verse 2 and going on to the end of verse 7. Very well, then, let's look at this together and realize as we do so that this is not merely a matter of academic interest. It isn't merely that we are going to spend a little time this morning in looking at the history of the Apostle Paul. Someone may say, well, why do you detain us with that? Don't you realize that the world is full of troubles and problems? What has all this got to do with us? I think you will see that when we've analyzed what the Apostle says, that he deals here with certain matters which are absolutely fundamental to the whole Christian position. Not only that, he has certain things to say here which seem to me to be most important with regard to all this talk today about ecumenicity and great world church and how we all ought to be together, even including Roman Catholicism to fight communism and so on. All this current talk, it seems to me that here he introduces us to certain cardinal principles which if we do not uh, understand them truly as we ought, will probably lead us into grievous error. In other words, I'm suggesting that as he tells us here his own personal history, he is indicating the New Testament teaching with regard to the church and certain offices in the church and the whole nature of Christian truth. Very well, then what does he say? Well, the first thing he tells them is this. He says, you know, you are what you are. You are members of the Christian church. And I am in prison at the moment simply because I am an apostle. If you have heard of the dispensation of the grace of God which is given me to you are, how that by revelation he made known unto me the mystery. Then he goes on to say later on that this selfsame mystery has been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit, whereof I was made a minister according to the gift of the grace of God given unto me by the effectual working of his power. Now then, here we are beginning to look at this extraordinary provision that God has made. And how pathetic it is to realize how infrequently we do stop and meditate upon all this. We are told so often in the scriptures that God has planned and purposed redemption before the foundation of the world. But how often do we work that out in detail? Have we seen this great master plan of God? And how every part and portion had been planned and foreordained, and how when the fullness of the times had come, God began to put it into practice. 
he'd got this great purpose of uniting Gentile and Jew and of sending this message of salvation throughout the whole world. Now, how was this to be done? Well, as the apostle will tell us in chapter 4, he's got this great scheme of the church. Uh, there's one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, but then uh, he has given gifts unto men. And there are these divisions of offices. He gave some apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, some pastors, some teachers for the perfecting of the saints, for the work of the ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ. And what a perfect plan it is. Now, all this has been ordained of God. And the apostle says, I was called by God to be an apostle. But you notice the beautiful language in which he puts it. A dispensation of the grace of God has been given to me, to you all. God, he says, has entrusted to me a stewardship of this marvelous grace of his. God has appointed me to be one of the custodians and the guardians of this precious favor which he is showing to mankind in the Son of his love, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Now, you can see at a glance why it was the apostle doesn't apologize for repeating this sort of thing. He never got over this. He never got over the marvel and the wonder of it. That he who had been a blasphemer and a persecutor, a man who hated Christ and his cause, and who thought he was doing God's service by persecuting the Christian church, that he had actually been given this dignity, this honor, this privilege of being called by God himself to be an apostle of this message, a dispenser of this truth, one who was called to propagate this astounding good news that has come into the world through our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. In other words, his claim is, as he claims everywhere, that he is in the fullest sense of the term an apostle, he is as much an apostle as Peter and James and John and all the other apostles. He who had been so opposed to it, he's in it. This grace has been given unto me, he says. Well, now we must just look for a moment at what he includes in this uh, definition and in this designation. To be an apostle means that one had been very definitely and specifically called by God himself, by the Lord Jesus Christ in particular. If you read these various epistles of this apostle in the New Testament and watch his introductions, you will find that he invariably almost refers to himself as one who is called to be an apostle, which is better put like this, a called apostle. Now, a man could not have been an apostle unless he had been called in this unique and special manner. An apostle, in other words, is never someone who's appointed by the church. No man can appoint an apostle. No man can create an apostle. An essential part of the definition of the calling of an apostle is that in a very unique and special and direct way, he has been called of God. Now the apostle puts it here like this. A grace has been given to me. A gift has been given to me. An honor has been conferred upon me. He, I say, is very much concerned 
to emphasize this. Let me give you one in, another instance of it uh, where he writes to the Galatians. Look at him opening his letter to the Galatians. Paul, an apostle, then in brackets, not of men, neither by men, but by Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead. You notice how he puts it and how important the negative is. Not of men, neither by men. You can't be an apostle of men or by men. Now, he does that, you see, for this good reason. That there were, uh, going round the churches in those early days, false apostles. Men who went and said, I am an apostle. And they said, don't believe the preaching of that apostle Paul. He's not an apostle at all. He's just a man who set himself up. They said, we are the apostles. And they told these people that they must be circumcised. They must submit to certain rites. And that this free gospel of salvation wasn't true. And what the apostle is always asserting is this, that they are false apostles. They are the antichrist as the Apostle John calls them. They were never called by God. They've been appointed either by men, themselves or some other men. They are of men and by men, and not by Jesus Christ and of God. But he says that he is a true apostle. This grace, he says, has been given unto me. And what a term it is. The thing itself is a grace. It's a dispensation of a grace. But he also includes this. When God called a man to be an apostle, by his grace he equipped him to be an apostle. He gave him certain gifts. And there were certain signs and marks of an apostle always. An apostle was a man who was always given the grace and the power to work miracles and signs and wonders. A man was not an apostle unless he was able to do this. You'll find many references to that again right through the New Testament scriptures. One of the seals, the marks, the signs of an apostle was that he had this supernatural, miraculous power. And so, when you read the book of the Acts of the Apostles, you will read a phrase like this, special miracles were worked by the apostle Paul. Special miracles. They were so profuse that people stood and marveled and wondered at it. And indeed that happened in this very city of Ephesus when he was there and led to an uproar, as you will read in chapter 19 of the book of the Acts of the Apostles. Very well, then. but above all that, and still more important for our immediate purpose, was this. An apostle was a man to whom God in a very special way gave the message of salvation. A dispensation, he says, of the grace of God has been given to me. The apostles are the stewards, the guardians, the custodians of this mystery of the faith. Now, again, it would be a very simple matter to give you large numbers of quotations in which the apostle says the same thing. Let me give you just one. Now, to the first epistle to the Corinthians, in the fourth chapter, in the first verse, we read this. Let a man so account of us as of the ministers of Christ and stewards 
of the mysteries of God. Now you see, all this is of tremendous importance for us. We've been already told by this apostle in the previous chapter that the church of God is established upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets. Well, we must know what that means. Well, here he's helping us to understand it. God takes these men, these certain men, and he makes them stewards. He makes them the custodians, the administrators of his marvelous redeeming grace. Now here you see, you see the opening of the plan of redemption. God the Father thought of it, he planned it. In the fullness of the times, he sent his only begotten son into the world to do the work that was absolutely necessary. If the son hadn't come and taught and died and borne the sins of men and their punishment and risen again and gone back into heaven, this could never have been done. The grace of God comes through the Lord Jesus Christ. All right. Then he sends the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost. In order that this grace that has been prepared may now be administered, that it may be dispensed to us, it's, there is no point in providing it unless the channel has been prepared by which it can come to us individually and we can receive it and enjoy it. Well, how did he do it? Well, the Holy Spirit does it in this way. He gives this enabling and this understanding and this power and ability to these men whom God has called and appointed to be the custodians and the guardians and the stewards. Now go back to the beginning of the book of the Acts of the Apostles and there you'll see it all quite perfectly. Our blessed Lord has risen again from the dead. He has manifested himself for forty days to his disciples. They know the facts about his life and death and resurrection but still they're not in a condition to go and preach. They cannot do that until they've received this fullness, this baptism of the Holy Spirit. Then they can, and they did. And filled with the Spirit of God, they went and they preached this message. That is what he means by saying that a dispensation, a stewardship of this amazing mystery of God's grace has been given even unto me. And he filled me with his spirit. He enabled me to understand. And he has sent me out to preach. He's given me power to preach. And to attest it by the miracles. And so I came to you. And I preached to you. And you've believed. And you're in the church. And I'm in prison because I did that. Now that's what he's telling. What a tremendous thing this is. That these Ephesians, most of whom were probably but ordinary common slaves, had come into this eternal plan and scheme of God. Look at the trouble to which God has gone in order that you and I might be redeemed and might be rescued and might become saints and might eventually spend our eternity in his glorious presence. Now then, says Paul to the Ephesians, don't you faint because of my tribulations? Don't think so much of my chains in prison. Think of this amazing thing that God has done. A dispensation of the grace of God has been given to me, to you, for you. He did that to me on the road to Damascus. There I was given it. He said, I've called you to be a minister and a witness. Do you remember how we saw it there in the reading in the 26th chapter of the book of the Acts? 
Then the dispensation was given to him and he was sent to preach to the Jews and to the Gentiles. Think of that, says the apostle. See this great purpose of God. Don't look at me and waste your sympathy on me. I'm glorying in the fact that I'm suffering for his name's sake. I want you to glory in it. Look at it like that. But then that takes us on to this second statement which he makes. Something he says has been committed to him. He's been made a steward. It's an obvious picture, isn't it? A great man with his castle and his great possessions. He can't do everything himself. What does he do? Well, he has to appoint stewards. He puts one man in charge of this and another man in charge of that. They are responsible. They look after it. They have to care for it and protect it and defend it. Stewards. Paul says, something has been committed to me and entrusted to me. I am a steward of what? Well, you notice what he calls it. He calls it a mystery. How that by revelation he made known unto me the mystery. And he repeats it. Uh, I wrote a four in few words, uh, whereby when he read he may understand my knowledge in the mystery of Christ. Now, you can't read uh, these New Testament epistles without constantly meeting this word mystery. And therefore it is absolutely essential that we should understand what he means by it. He is an administrator of the mystery. What is this mystery? Now, it's very important we should understand this word today in particular for this good reason. That uh, there are those who think that the meaning of this term mystery is that the Christian message, the Christian faith, is something vague and uh, indefinite and nebulous something which rarely cannot be defined at all. And that really this is nothing but some kind of mysticism. There are those, I say, who hold that view. You're familiar with the teaching. And it's here I'm able to show you the practical relevance of this section to our immediate position. Now the whole tendency at the present time is to discount definition and to discount doctrine and dogma and all theological formulation. You see, this is, this is the way in which it's put to us. They say these are the things that divide Christians. And as the one thing that matters is that we should all be united, well, obviously we mustn't consider these things at all. Indeed, they go further and they say this, that Christianity by its very nature is something that eludes definition. Ah, they say, but you mustn't try and define these things. It's a wonderful mystical experience. It is a mystery. And uh, you can't say what it is, but you can be initiated into it, as it were. You can't put it on paper, but you can feel it and experience it. But the moment you try to say what it is and to define it and say it is this and isn't that, well, then, of course, you're destroying it. It's no longer a mystery. It's now becoming plain and clear. So they interpret the word mystery as meaning mysticism, or almost mistiness, a vagueness, indefiniteness, something, I say, that cannot be reduced to propositions. But surely the apostle himself here and everywhere else 
denies such a contention completely. What the apostle says is this, that the mystery has been revealed. That he is a preacher because the mystery has been revealed to him. It isn't something vague and indefinite. What it is has been made plain and clear to him. Well then, what is the mystery? Well, a mystery in the New Testament sense is a technical term and it means this. It is a truth which because of its character can never be attained unto or arrived at by the unaided human intellect or ability. That is what the New Testament means by a mystery. The thing itself is clear. But because man is what he is, he cannot by his own unaided intellect arrive at it or understand it. Now then, let me take you again to the classical statement of that in the first epistle to the Corinthians in the second chapter, where the apostle has put it perfectly once and forever. Listen to this. How be it, he says, we speak wisdom among them that are perfect, yet not the wisdom of this world, nor of the princes of this world that come to naught, but we speak the wisdom of God in a mystery. Even the hidden wisdom which God ordained before the world unto our glory, which the, none of the princes of this world knew. For had they known it, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. But as it is written, I hath not seen nor ear heard, neither have entered into the heart of men the things which God hath prepared for them that love him. But God hath revealed them unto us by his Spirit. For the Spirit searcheth all things, yea, the deep things of God. Now there it is. The wisdom that we speak, says Paul, is not the wisdom of this world. It's the hidden wisdom, the hidden mystery of God. Now, the natural man, even though he be a prince, he doesn't understand it. He can't arrive at it. His intellect is not adequate. But God hath revealed them unto us by the Spirit. So that the mystery, you see, is something. Not vague and indefinite and nebulous. No, it's very definite. But man can never arrive at it. He must receive it from God. And once he receives it, he understands it, and he can expand it. And so, you see, what the apostle is saying here is this. That what God committed to him as a custodian, as a, a steward, as a trustee, was an insight into a knowledge of this amazing mystery. So that he is able now to transmit it and to impart it unto others. And that was his business as an apostle. Very well, there is one of the terms, the mystery. And then he says that this was something that was revealed unto him. How that by revelation he made known unto me the mystery and oh, again, how constantly does he impress this upon us? You know, says Paul, I haven't arrived at this knowledge any more than anybody else by my own understanding. Do you remember how he put it to King Agrippa on that famous occasion? I verily thought with myself that I should do many things contrary to the name of Jesus of Nazareth. That's his thinking. 
And he'd have gone on till his death doing that, denouncing it, hating it, persecuting it, when he thought with himself, his own human understanding. But what happened? Well, he said, I was on the road to Damascus. I was going down to exterminate the Christians of Damascus. Breathing out threatenings and slaughter, when suddenly about noonday, I saw a light in the heavens above the brightest shining of the sun, and a face, and I heard a voice. And what happened? Well, it was the Lord of glory, the Lord Jesus Christ, appearing to him. And he said to him, I have appeared unto thee, Paul, in order to tell you certain things. He revealed the mystery to me concerning himself and his great purpose. And he gave me this dispensation. He made me an apostle. He said, I'm going to send you. Oh, we can never overemphasize this. I take you back again to the epistle to the Galatians where the apostle, having said it in that first verse, repeats it in verses 11 and 12. Listen to this. I certify you, brethren, that the gospel which was preached of me is not after men, for I neither received it of men, neither was I taught it, but by the revelation of Jesus Christ. Look here, says the apostle in effect to these Ephesians, don't let anybody or anything upset your faith. What I have preached to you, I received not from men, I wasn't taught it even by the other apostles. I was taught it by the Lord Jesus Christ himself when he appeared to me on the road to Damascus. I've had it by revelation. He appeared to me there. He appeared to me again when I was in the temple one day. He appeared to me when I was in Corinth. I've had it by revelation. It isn't what I think. It isn't the message that I'm repeating parrot fashion. It isn't something that I've got in a book. He's given it me direct. My authority is none other than the authority of the Lord of glory himself. Therefore, he says, hold on to these things. This is what makes me an apostle. That I have received it all by this direct revelation from the Lord Jesus Christ. And you notice that he says the same thing about all the holy apostles and prophets. You see, which brings us to this which I'm anxious to emphasize before I close. The church is built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets in this way, that it is to the apostles and prophets that God has revealed the mystery. The greatest men of the world couldn't understand it. They looked at Jesus of Nazareth. They said, he's just a man, he's a carpenter. They didn't see he was the son of God. That has to be revealed. The mystery of Christ. They couldn't see it. It wasn't revealed unto them. Christ himself had said one day, you remember, I thank thee, O Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that thou hast hid these things from the wise and prudent, and hast revealed them unto babes. Even so, Father, for so it seemed good in thy sight. Revelation. Now, God has revealed this truth. To the apostles and prophets once and forever. What were the prophets? Well, they were not apostles. The apostles were these select few, these twelve men, but there were these others, these prophets. What are they? Well, they are men who are given special understanding and enlightenment of the truth that has been revealed and can teach it to others. You'll find a perfect definition of that in 1 Corinthians 14, 3. 
And now you see this is where you and I come in. What you and I have in the New Testament is the teaching of the apostles and prophets. We were considering a few Sunday mornings ago the claim that the New Testament makes for itself and we said this is the claim. The early church led of the Holy Spirit would not admit any book into the New Testament canon unless it could either be proved that it had been written by an apostle or else under the influence of an apostle. Nothing else is canonical unless it comes with apostolic authority. Now then, here it comes to us, the apostles and prophets. We have the message, the revelation of the mystery, here in this word of God. Very well, as we close, let us learn certain vital lessons for ourselves. The first is obviously this. The glorious character of what God has done for us in the gospel of redemption. I wonder whether we have seen something of its glory this morning. That the almighty eternal God should have taken such trouble. That those slaves in Ephesus, those pagans, should come to know this truth and become the children of God. What a plan. What a perfect plan. What an organization. There it is. It is all of grace, you see. It is all of God. It wasn't Saul of Tarsus who decided to become a Christian and to go and preach in Ephesus. Not at all a dispensation of this marvelous grace, he said, has been given to me. He looked down upon me and he met me on the road to Damascus and he said, look here, I've taken hold of you because I want to make a steward of you. The grace of God, the kindness, the mercy, the compassion of God. What an astounding thing. My friends, I'm afraid that you and I, modern Christians, don't like to contemplate the plan of salvation as our fathers did. I mean the fathers of a century and two centuries, and especially three centuries ago, and the great Protestant fathers. They delighted in contemplating this great plan of redemption. As you and I do so, we shall be made to glory in it and to triumph in it, even as Paul wanted these Ephesians to. But then let us learn a lesson about the nature or the character of an apostle. Have we realized that the office of an apostle is something absolutely unique? That an apostle was one who was called directly by the Lord, that he had to be a witness of the resurrection that he was given a unique inspiration and authority, that he was given this power to attest his calling by miracles and signs and wonders. Do we see the unique character of an apostle? That an apostle belongs to the foundation of the church and the foundation only, so that I come to my next principle, which is this. That there can be no repetition of an apostle. And that the talk of apostolic succession is simply to deny the scriptural teaching. 
There can be no successor to the apostles. The truth has been revealed. We don't need revelation. It was revealed to the apostles and prophets. Then they, having transmitted it, having preached it, and having written it, we have it. So that as it is a part of the definition of an apostle, that is a man who receives the revelation in a unique manner, there obviously can be no successor. In other words, our quarrel with Rome and its followers is not political, it's scriptural. They are denying the scripture. They are saying that the foundation can be perpetuated in the wall and can be continued in the... It's impossible. A foundation is once and forever on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. Likewise, I trust that we have seen again something of the nature of Christian truth. It's not ordinary knowledge. It is not something that the unaided human intellect can understand and receive. Without the enlightenment which the Holy Spirit alone can give, this truth remains as dark and as hidden to us as it did to the princes of this world when the Lord of glory was actually amongst men. But God hath revealed them unto us by his Spirit. We have received not the Spirit that is of the world, but the Spirit that is of God, that we might know the things that are freely given to us of God. This is not ordinary truth. Whatever our intellects, whatever our brilliance, it will never be enough. We must all become as little children. We need the inspiration and the anointing and the unction of the Holy Ghost. And lastly, we are entirely dependent upon the scriptures. We can know no saving truth apart from what we find here. And obviously in the light of all we've been saying, nothing can ever be added to this. Again, you see where we separate from Rome. Ah, she says, we have received further revelation. But surely there can be no further revelation. Revelation only comes to apostles and prophets. And there are no apostles now and cannot be, by definition. So that we are entirely confined to this, we can add nothing to this. And thirdly, we must take nothing from this. We are in no position to pick and choose from this. We cannot say, I believe this, I reject that. I rather like the teaching of Jesus, I don't believe in miracles. I like the way in which he died, I don't believe he was born of a virgin. The moment you begin to do that, you're denying revelation. You are saying that your unaided human intellect is capable of judging this and sifting it and finding what is true and what is false. You pick this, you reject that. That's to deny the whole principle of revelation, of apostolate, of this unique work of the Holy Spirit. So you see how important this digression is for us? We are absolutely shut into the New Testament and its teaching. I know nothing apart from that. I can't add to that. I can't subtract from it. I take it as it is with the authority of the apostles. Or else I just say, well, this is what I think and this is what I believe. Well, you're entitled to say that. 
But according to this authoritative word of the apostles, the authoritative word of God, if you do that, you are in darkness, you are unenlightened, and you remain outside the life of God. And without any experience of his grace and his blessing in Jesus Christ our Lord. Paul, a called apostle, a dispensation of the grace of God has been entrusted to him and he's delivered it. You've got it, you're Christians, and I'm suffering for it. Forget that. Think of the glory and the marvel and the wonder of what God has provided for you in his infinite grace and kindness. Amen. We do hope that you've been helped by the preaching of Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones. All of the sermons contained within the MLJ Trust audio library are now available for free download. You may share the sermons or broadcast them. However, because of international copyright, please be advised that we are asking first that these sermons never be offered for sale by a third party. And second, that these sermons will not be edited in any way for length or to use as audio clips. You can find our contact information on our website at mljtrust.org. That's mljtrust.org.